Let us turn to John 13. Today we'll be looking at verses 21 through 30. Not the cheeriest, cheeriest of texts, mind you, but it is the word of our God. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he immediately went out, and it was night. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures which you have given us by the Spirit to make us wise for salvation through faith in your Son. We ask that you would make it profitable for us, teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness. Make us mature. Equip us for good works as we study the scriptures this morning. And we pray this in the name of him to whom it all points, Jesus. Amen. Before he was an elder, he was a close friend of mine. And uh, sometimes we make decisions that are very difficult. While I was away on vacation, he had made a decision without talking to me about this and uh, it had to do with our worship, and I was the chairman of not only the pastor, but the chairman of our worship team. So I thought that was a little strange. When we got back, I heard about this, and I made an adjustment, and we disagreed about that. I was thinking about the good of the whole body, and he was thinking about the good of one person. And when we do this, there is a sense that there's no way to reconcile these two things, And I thought it would be okay, but I found out it wasn't. That as kind of time went by, our relationship became more and more troubled, and he began to attack me in ways that I didn't understand. It got so that when he and his family moved away, instead of feeling great sorrow, I felt a bit of relief. 
That's part of what a sense of betrayal creates. It's hard to walk through. You begin to second-guess everything that you've done. You begin to second-guess why people are your friends and why people stop being your friends. It's a very painful time. I wish I could say it was the only time, but it wasn't the only time in ministry that I've sensed that, sent that betrayal. And it's not the only time in ministry that people haven't felt betrayed by me either. So I think this text says something very important to us. My big idea this morning is that Jesus was betrayed for our comfort and our salvation. Let's start where the text starts and that Jesus comforts us when we've been betrayed. Yes, I'm reading between the lines there, so to speak. John here uh, paints us this picture throughout the gospel of an exalted Jesus who looks rather ordinary precisely because he's fully human as well as fully God. And so we see this phrase that has come up quite a bit in the last couple of chapters, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. The betrayal, the impending betrayal of Judas has led Jesus to be troubled, to be agitated. This shows us, among other things, that being agitated in and of itself is not sinful. For if Jesus does it, it can't be sinful. There are times in which we should be agitated. One of my friends commented to me on Thursday night at General Assembly that I looked like I wanted to punch somebody. I was agitated. I'm not sure how righteous my agitation was. I was frustrated with our brothers on the floor who seemed to think that we should just let bygones be bygones instead of dealing with history and how it impacts the present. Jesus was agitated. He testified as to why. In other words, he didn't just stew, but he spoke to his disciples. He clued them in on why he was so agitated, because apparently, just as I am not good at hiding my emotions, he wasn't good at hiding his. And I think that's a good thing. Because when we play the hypocrite is when we get in big trouble. He testified, one of you will betray me. He points out the source of this. What is betrayal? Dan Allender has essentially called betrayal the breaking of fellowship by failing to care, and I think I added guard, and protect another person. You see, because he was a disciple of Jesus, Judas had taken on certain responsibilities, and among those responsibilities was to guard and protect Jesus from all that would do him harm. He would come and he would sit at the feet of Jesus, and he would listen and he would learn, and he had a responsibility as a result of that to guard and protect Jesus as much as he could. 
anyway. But instead of protecting Jesus from those who wanted to do him harm, Judas took money from them to aid them in Jesus' destruction. Scripture is filled with betrayal. It starts very, right at the very beginning. Adam and Eve betraying God, forfeiting their calling because they listened to the serpent. Cain betraying his brother Abel, slaying him with a rock. Judah the namesake of Judas, betraying Joseph. And the list goes on. The psalmists, if you look at the psalms, they're filled with this sense of betrayal. And there's a reason for that. It's because they experienced it frequently, particularly David. He was betrayed repeatedly by Joab. Every time David sought to bring peace between the house and the people who followed Saul and himself, there's Joab messing it all up by killing somebody. His own son Absalom seduced the nation and started a coup against David. Part of that was a Ahithophel. Say that five times quickly. I ask you to say it one time quickly. Who was one of David's counselors. And now here he is counseling his rebellious son against David. The man that David trusted is now being trusted by his enemy. Each time the betrayal certainly broke David's heart. Which is why we read in Psalm 55, For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It's expected when your enemy taunts you. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. The reason why David felt that heartbreak so profoundly, and Jesus is so agitated, is that it was someone close to him. It was someone with whom he broke bread. It was someone who had stayed with him for three years, sitting at his feet, following him around. Part of what makes the shooting in Charleston so abhorrent to me and to many others is that Dylan Roof didn't just walk in the doors and shoot people. First he came in, he sat down, was welcomed by them, and appeared to worship with them. Betrayal. By someone to whom you open your heart, even if it's just that first day. This intensifies the pain Because we expect our enemies to stab us. Part of why Jesus, not the only reason why, but part of why Jesus experienced this betrayal is so that we can turn to an understanding Savior. When we have been betrayed, we have a great high priest, as it says in Hebrews chapter 4, 
who has been through this situation that we can approach because he sits upon the throne of grace and who will give us the grace and mercy we need in that time of need, according to our need, because of that betrayal. When our best friend has turned out to be our enemy, when one close to us has turned on us, we can go to Jesus who understands because he has experienced it. It is not something foreign to him. He tasted bitter tears. And therefore he's empathetic, empathetic rather, towards us. And so to him we should go seeking mercy and grace. And I'm so thankful for the example of Emmanuel, African Methodist Episcopal Church, for they appear to have sought Jesus. Because instead of responding with anger and hatred of their own and mistrust, what we hear them saying, at least at this point, is to him, we forgive you. And not only that, but we say, we, I see them in, saying in the newspaper, well, online, I don't read newspapers anymore, we're still going to open our hearts to these people. We want there to be visitors and we don't want to mistrust them. We're going to open the doors and let them in, even though one has betrayed us. And so we see that instead of turning over into unbelief, in bitterness, and in fear. They're responding in faith, hope, and love. And that can only happen because they have, they have gone to the feet of Jesus, poured out their hearts, and asked for His grace. Dan Allender, in The Healing Path, talks a lot about betrayal in one chapter. He mentions that the healing path does not deny the agony of betrayal, but instead uses it to marvel at the solid ground of God's faithfulness in contrast to our fickleness. He goes on later to say that when betrayal ends a relationship, we struggle with profound doubt about our desirability and discernment it becomes easy to replace faith with suspicion. There is a danger that we experience when we have been betrayed. It is a danger that should drive us to Jesus. So when betrayed, look to Him who understands and provides grace to comfort us in the midst of betrayal. Secondly, let us keep in mind that Jesus knows all who will betray him. You see, now, Jesus announces this, and one of you will betray me. And the disciples, as you might imagine, did not handle that incredibly well. They sort of had that, probably, they probably had the deer in the headlights look for a moment. John doesn't record what Matthew and Mark record with regard to their being sorrowful about it, and also going, is it me? Am I the one who is going to betray you? 
The other accounts seem to imply that they thought that this betrayal would be a, a rather inadvertent or accidental betrayal, not that there was someone who was actively plotting against Jesus in their midst. This means one thing, that Judas did a really good job of hiding it from everybody. There is no one that said, it's got to be Judas. I've been seeing the way he looks at Jesus lately, and I can tell that his eyes have grown hard and mean. He didn't say that. No one said that. There was no one when Dylan Roof walked into the Emmanuel AME church that said, here's a man who comes to do us harm. They thought, here is a man who comes to worship. You see, all of this reminds us, or should remind us, of 1 Timothy chapter 5. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. There are things that remain hidden now that will only be revealed later. Peter, not being content to wait, as Peter often was, motions to what John called to the person John calls the one that Jesus loved. Okay? Most likely John himself. Would it be humble of you if you were the one whom Jesus loved to say, I am the one Jesus loved? <laughs> no, it wouldn't. And so John, I think, obscures it for this very reason. Because of his humility. But Peter motions to John, little gesture, talk to him. Find out who it is. We need to know. Why this disciple? This one whom Jesus loved was positioned perfectly to be able to whisper in Jesus' ear and have Jesus whisper in his ear. You see, they were probably at a table that was shaped kind of almost like a U, but, you know, a hard angle, not rounded angle. And they were reclining on these couches, which was unusual. Okay. If we look at Amos 6, I believe it was Amos 6, that we read earlier today, we see that uh, reclining on couches was frowned upon because of the decadence that was associated with it. When this practice was introduced into Israel, initially there was that sense of decadent, bad. Over time, it began to be accepted for particular circumstances, and those would be special occasions like this. It's sort of like if you go to the boyer's house. Are you eating at the kitchen table? Depends how many of you are, there are. Or are you eating at the dining room table? Are you eating with the regular china or serviceware or the special china? This would be the special stuff. This would be the dining room table kind of meal. 
okay, because it was most, it was most likely the Passover meal. And so they're reclining, and uh, to recline on these couches, it's not like a backed couch like we have, if you go to my house, but you're, you're kind of using your left arm because you don't want to eat with your left hand. You remember that, right? Okay. If you don't know why, ask later. Okay, so leaning back with the, with the left hand, and that means that John was most likely to the left of Jesus, leaning back, not just at his side, but the, the phrase that is used is at his bosom. He's, he's right here. So all he's going to do is kind of lean back. Jesus, who is it? And all Jesus has to do is say, the one to whom I give the morsel in his ear. And never, no, one, no one else will hear it. Of course, if it's like any of the meals at the DeGroote household that we're going to go to, it's always noisy and no one can hear anything anyway. But, you know. So he's leaning back and there's someone, you know, that Jesus is leaning into somebody else. But let's stop for a second. He's singled out as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Something of a click. There are times when churches are accused of cliques, and there are times when they should be accused of cliques. But we see in the Gospels that there, there there was a hierarchy of a sense. Jesus spent the most time with the big three. Not GM Ford and Chrysler, of course, but but Peter and his brother. Oh, sorry, not his brother, John and his brother James. Those three, they spent the most time with Jesus. And then the next layer of people that would spend time with Jesus was the whole twelve. And then there would be sort of the extended disciples, and then there would be the crowds. And so. There were these different levels of relationship that Jesus had even within the disciples that reflected not just his love, but also the calling placed upon them. And that's kind of a key thing. I should spend a lot of time with the officers of this church. That's a good thing. Because I'm supposed to pour me into them so they can pour themselves into all of you. So, not that I should hide in my office and never have lunch with any of you. I'm not saying that. But I will spend more time with the officers. And that's not a bad thing. Okay, back to this. Jesus whispering, so to speak, to John slyly reveals that it is Judas with this dipped Morsel. Now, the ESV keeps adding the word bread. The Greek text doesn't have the word bread. So that's why some of you may have gone, why is he not following the ESV? He skipped over those words. That's why. It could have been bread. We're not sure what he dipped, and we're not sure what he dipped it into. It could have been, because it was the Passover, he could have been dipping something into the bitter herbs, Okay, Or he could have been dipping bread into wine. We don't know. But as I read this, I, of course, went back a couple of years to the PCA discussion of intinction or dipping and thought, Jesus dipped, but this wasn't good because it identified the one who was going to betray him. It's frightening. 
what the text says. Then Satan entered him. This is like the polar opposite of communion. Instead of receiving the Spirit and Christ through the bread and the wine, he receives Satan because of his unbelief. But let us think about this for a moment. This indicates that Judas's heart was wide open to the scrutiny of Jesus, that he was able to penetrate the heart of Judas and know what he's going to do, what his character was. And this ought to remind us that our hearts are just as open to Jesus, that he knows who we really are and not just who we sometimes pretend to be. That Jesus can see behind the mask and the image management that we use. Hebrews 4 reminds us of this, that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We're not going to fill him in on details. He's going to know it all already. But all will stand before him. But there's another passage, 2 Timothy 2, that reminds us that God's firm foundation stands bearing this, this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So Jesus knows, as He looks upon this congregation, who belongs to Him. Though you can't see the seal of the Spirit, He does. He also knows who doesn't belong to Him even though we can't see it until it's revealed in space and time. That should make us tremble. He knows all those that are His, but He also knows all those who will betray Him in time. Let's get back to that notion that Satan entered into Him, meaning Judas, God gave Judas over to the depravity of his own heart. This is an amplification of what we find in Romans 1, where it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. There's no greater impurity than hatred and murder in your heart. And he was given over to that. The Spirit did not restrain it. There was no grace for him to see. I see this is rising up in my heart, and I know it's ugly before God. Help me. Have mercy on me. He just went with it. God gave him over to the hatred that was in his heart. He wasn't filled with the Spirit and therefore life, but he was filled with the adversary who lies and kills. And we must remember, brothers and sisters, that apart from Christ, apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and apart from His grace, that is what we would do. Let us not look upon Judas as though we're above him. Let us not look upon Dylan Roof as though somehow we're superior to him. 
Because the seed of every sin lies within our hearts and awaits opportunity to grow and bloom. There is nothing you wouldn't do given the right set of circumstances apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. And we have to hear that so that we're humbled by it, so that we continue to seek His mercy and grace. Not to fill you with fear, but that you might be humble. I need you today, Jesus. And I will need you tomorrow. And I will need you next week, next month, next year, because there is a bunch of rebellion within me that you have not yet removed. And you will not remove until Jesus returns. Help me. Help me. So Jesus knows what is in the hearts of men, and He knows all who will betray Him. Thirdly, I told Steve Boyer this might be a short sermon. I may have lied to him. (laughs) Jesus was betrayed so that the sheep can be saved. I had to get some alliteration in there, didn't I? The disciples, again, as I've mentioned, aren't sure what has happened. They didn't hear what went on between Jesus and John and therefore didn't understand what happened between Jesus and Judas. And so, you know, when he dips this thing and Judas gets up to go, Jesus says, what you must do, do quickly. They aren't sure what to make of that. And so John mentions two of the, the, the ideas that were floating through their heads. One of them was that he's gone to buy supplies. And yes, uh, well, the mission is a little divided on this. Some say that it was possible to buy essential things for the Passover, even though it would have been night. And other pa- passages seem to say, well, you know, everything was kind of closed. So it's a little divided on that. Other disciples thought, is he going to give alms? And many of you might think, that's an odd time to go give alms in the middle of dinner. Well, during Passover was one of the few times that the gate would be open at night so that people could go in and give alms. Not sure why, but they weren't fools to think this. Do quickly. Jesus wants Judas to fulfill his role in our salvation. Of course, as I read that, I thought, some of you might be thinking, Steve, what you're going to do, do quickly. Um, (laughs) See, I've got a twisted mind. Okay? He wants him to fulfill God's plan and purpose, even though God's plan and purpose means the betrayal and the death of Jesus, His own death. You see, in the wisdom of God, it seems fitting, or it seemed fitting to God, and therefore it should seem fitting to us, that Jesus be betrayed by Judas. It was not accidental. But as we look at our confession and our catechism, we should go that it is based on God's holy, wise, and good counsel. That doesn't mean the act itself was good, holy, or wise. In fact, it was neither of those things. But by God's 
good, holy, and wise counsel, he determined that this is how his son should be given into the hands of those who are going to destroy him. Because Jesus is not going to commit suicide. Jesus is going to be murdered by wicked men, and among those wicked men would be this disciple of his, Judas. And what we see here, in many ways, is Romans 8, 28 in action. We see Genesis 50 in action. What, what Judas intended for harm, God intended for good, for the saving of many lives. God works all things to the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And so even this very bad thing that happens, for which Judas will be held accountable, brings about much good in the saving of the sheep. God continually brings good results from evil actions by men, and our salvation is the primary example of that. But there's also good news and that the betrayed one, in doing this, purchased forgiveness for us when we betray. When we're the betrayer. There is pardoning grace that can be found in Christ. And so, Jesus' anguish was not for nothing, but actually, as we see in Romans 12, uh, sorry, Hebrews 12, results in joy. Because he bought people for God. For the joy that was before him, he thought little of the cross. He also thought little of the betrayal. Because when he, when he did the calculus, so to speak, the joy of redemption infinitely outweighed the shame and the pain of what he would experience. And so he embraced it for His glory, and for our good. Now, I think this means that we cannot take the big eraser or the whiteout and kind of remove the betrayal of Jesus from the text and still have our salvation. And that's just like God's providence for all of us. Aren't there things in your life that you wish you could kind of go back and let's get rid of that one? Whether it's something you did or something that was done to you, all of us probably have a long list of things that we think, if I were God, this wouldn't have happened. Thank God you're not God. Because that too is according to His holy, good, and wise purpose that we cannot understand at times. But you wouldn't be where you are now if it weren't for that. That he had some good purpose in mind, a good intention in mind, when those bad things happened. And so the providence of God should comfort us that even in the midst of our pain and sorrow, God did not abandon us, but He has a purpose and a plan even if I can't figure it out.
So betrayal is a peculiar kind of pain where we begin to wonder if we are to blame for it all. We begin to doubt and distrust ourselves and our ability to figure out who's our friend and who's our enemy. But we see here that Jesus entered into this pain when he was betrayed by Judas. And though it was no surprise to Jesus, he still was troubled, he still was distraught, so that Jesus can be empathetic towards us as our great high priest who gives us mercy and grace. Betrayed, Jesus also provides grace and mercy for all of us, which is most of us, if not all of us, who have betrayed others, especially Jesus. And so our salvation necessitated Judas's betrayal because that's how great our sin is. But here's the good news. Jesus never turned aside. And that's the reason we enjoy redemption. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that Jesus did not turn away that he did not reject the cup that had been offered to him, but that he drank from it freely, taking upon himself the curse that we rightfully deserved so that we could drink the cup of blessing. And I thank you, Father, that included in that cup of cursing was betrayal. that he has borne the penalty for our betrayal. And he's also borne, in many instances, the betrayal of those, the guilt of those who have betrayed us, that we might forgive them and move forward. And we ask that you would indeed be at work in our hearts to see where we need forgiveness, where we need to forgive that we might grow in godliness because Jesus was betrayed. And we ask this in his name. Amen.